Grace and peace be with you from the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say thank you for your kind prayers, texts, and messages uh, to my wife and I uh, in this time of grief and sorrow in our family. Uh, I do not want that to get in the way of what we're doing today, but perhaps the Lord will tie it all together. I also want to thank our dear friend and brother Danny Durham. If you haven't met him yet, he's sitting right back in the center. He offered to preach for me today if I needed him to do so. And I was so tempted to allow him to do it, even handed him my notebook. And he said, oh, wait, I'm in another time. So uh, we're continuing our series on by faith. And when we talk about faith, we also include in that discussion of faith notions of doubt and struggle as a part of the fabric of faith. And we want to deal realistically with those things and invite you into that struggle along with us. In the spirit of what the Apostle Paul did in Galatians chapter 1, where he opened the letter up by telling a part of his story before getting into chapter 3, I want to do the same today. Tie in a little bit of my story as we go into Galatians, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3. Y2K was the winter of my discontent. It was a time in my life that was marked with many doubts and despair. At the turn of the millennium, my family and I were living near the Rocky Mountains in northern Colorado. I had just put my ministry out of its misery for various reasons. The deepest reason was spiritual, and it was actually the hardest to express, and it took me a while to come to grips with what was happening. It wasn't about the elders. It wasn't about the congregation. It was about my own heart. It had to do with the gospel. After all my years in and around churches and with a few years of ministry under my belt, it struck me that I did not really and truly know the gospel, much less believe the gospel. I was, in fact, preaching and teaching words like gospel and cross and mercy and grace, but I was not actually proclaiming Jesus Christ. I was guilty of exchanging the propositions of hardcore legalism with a kinder and gentler moralistic religion. And so what I was doing was fighting works with works, and I was losing the battle. I was preaching from the Bible, but I was not preaching the good news about Jesus from the Bible. I was guilty of promoting a form of Christianity, basically preaching my brand of denomination, but not preaching the faith of Jesus Christ. And so what I was preaching was something like Jesus plus your desire plus your commitment is the good news. But it was no good news at all. I meant well, but in retrospect, I know that I was dangerously close to preaching a different gospel, a false gospel. And so by a weak and threadbare faith, I walked away from the ministry feeling quite confused and even condemned in my own heart. I didn't think it through all the way, and because of the way things played out, it left me with no job, no home, no church, no income, and no future. Plenty of kids and a wife and a guilty conscience. Some Hispanic friends that I had pastored loaned us a little pink trailer house 
to help us get back up on our feet, to make sure we weren't on the street somewhere. We stayed there for several months, and in some ways, as I look back on those months, I think they were some of the hardest and yet some of the happiest times of my life. Colorado was booming at the time. Everyone was hiring, no matter where you went. Now hiring, everyone wanted someone to work, and so I tried very hard and applied in so many places, but no matter how hard I tried and no matter how many places I applied to, place after place assured me that no one wanted to hire a former minister. They were concerned about scandal, no doubt. That's what I tell myself, but I know it's actually because we ministers have no transferable skills. And so there I was, caught in a rock in a hard place. By contrast to that, my wife Shannon was offered three or four jobs the very first day she went out trying and applying, which was only insult to injury for me. And so, against my own desire and effort, I became a stay-at-home dad before it was actually cool to be a stay-at-home dad. But I'll tell you, it was really good, and it felt really good to just be a husband, a father, a neighbor, and a seeker. I spent a lot of time reading the scriptures, sitting in the yard next to a tree stump, drinking coffee and praying that God would either reveal the true gospel to me or that he would release me from ministry or perhaps even both. After all, what good is a minister who doesn't really and truly know the good news of Jesus Christ? This went on for several weeks. You can't imagine how long those days were, how difficult it was to go through that grind day after day. And then one morning in March, in late March, about this time of the year, in fact, I went out to that tree stump, coffee in one hand, Bible in the other, and sat down and started reading Galatians, the first of Paul's letters to churches. I desperately wanted to know the gospel, but it seemed like I was simply going in circles, spinning my wheels, stuck at a dead end. And to be honest, I just wanted to give up. And I think that might have been the day I thought, I will give up today. And then I came to, to Galatians 3, and something changed, something that I didn't expect. I read the scriptures, and I entered into a kind of living conversation. And I saw someone I hadn't seen before, and I heard someone I hadn't heard before. And the voice said, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to obtain your effort, your, your goal by human effort? And I took that personally, but I kept on reading and looking and listening. The righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And I thought, for us? 
Even me? For me? And the eyes of my heart were opened, and I heard the Spirit of Christ speaking this grace and truth into my heart. Jesus was cursed for me so that I would be blessed by God. It seemed too good to be true. But the winter of my discontent quickly turned into the spring of my discovery and my deliverance. How can you be approved or accepted by God? Is there something you can do to improve your credit score with the Lord? Something you can think, say, or do to please him and to make him proud of you? Like so many of you, once upon a time in my life, I was led to believe that if you wanted to be accepted and approved by God, then you needed Jesus as your Savior, but you also needed to add certain things to the mix in order to do your part to help Jesus save you. That false gospel is something like Jesus plus good morals. Don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or go with girls who do. Jesus plus all the right doctrines. Jesus plus the right brand of church. Jesus plus daily Bible reading. Jesus plus mission work. Jesus plus the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. Jesus plus a rosary. Jesus plus patriotism. Baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, and vote Republican. Jesus plus being an all-around nice guy, a good old boy. Jesus plus fill in the blank. Like many of you, I was taught that you had to think, speak, and do more good things than bad things and tip the scales of justice in your favor, and that's what amounted to the gospel. The Christians who received Paul's letter were going through the same kind of thing in their life. Teachers and preachers were going around telling them that if they really and truly wanted to be saved, if they wanted to be accepted and approved by God, then what they needed to do was act more like super religious people. They needed to keep all kinds of laws and customs and rituals, and that would make them right with God. He would find that acceptable and pleasing. And so in that context, the gospel of Jesus was perverted and twisted by super religious people. The false teachers were announcing a false gospel that said that salvation is by faith in Jesus plus other things. And it's the plus other things you have to be careful about and watch out for. In this context, they were saying salvation is by faith in Jesus plus getting circumcised snip snap snip snap no pain no gain salvation is by faith in jesus plus keeping the ten commandments so do your best to climb that stairway to heaven work hard and earn your salvation god's done his part now you need to do your part salvation is by faith in jesus plus strict sabbath keeping Make sure that you make every effort and work extra hard not to do any work on the day of worship and rest. And be sure to make sure that no one else around you is working on the Sabbath. Keep an eye out for them. By faith, Jesus plus, by faith in Jesus plus special diets and fasting. Show others how devout and religious you are. 
by avoiding certain foods and drinks, even the ones that Jesus declared to be clean. Paul was very upset with this situation in Galatia. And he fought back against all of those teachers. And so here in Galatians 3, he uses the story of the scriptures to prove that no one can be accepted and approved by God simply by performing works of the law. Later on in the letter, his anger is increasing and he tells those Jesus plus circumcision folks to go all the way and emasculate themselves. Emasculate. Let me know how you're lunch conversations uh, go today as you explain that to your children or talk about the imagery of that picture. The reason Paul was so upset is because this is a matter of life and death, a matter of blessing and cursing. I want you to think about your own life and how many of you have heard things like this. You could nod your head or look down to let me know that you relate to what I'm about to say how many of you have heard things like grace gets you started, but works get you finished? Or that God has done his part, but now it's up to you to do your part? Or God helps those who help themselves? Or God wipes your, your slate clean, but it's up to you to keep your slate clean? How many of us have believed those things or even tried to live up to them? Some of you work hard no matter what. You work hard no matter what. You hope that all the good of your life outweighs all the bad. You hope and pray that in the end you will have done enough to sneak past the guards and somehow get into heaven. Reminds me that a few years ago I was visiting a woman in a nursing home. She felt like she didn't have very long to live and in fact she did not have very long to live. She took my hand and said to me, I just hope that I've done enough to make it. And I looked down at her right in the eye and I said, oh, you haven't done enough to make it. None of us has. But Jesus has done enough for all of us. And that's all that matters in the beginning, the middle and the end. I know that some of you feel tempted to throw up your hands and quit out of frustration or just give up in despair. Life is hard. The Christian faith seems hard. Cross-bearing seems impossible. You know you'll never be good enough or you'll never make yourself acceptable and approved by God no matter how hard you try. You're reminded again and again that you're a failure and a loser before God and man, which is a more specific way of saying you're a sinner. You feel no relief from the guilt and the shame that you carry in your heart and in your conscience. And no matter how much you keep recommitting, you keep stumbling. No matter how hard you keep trying, you keep failing. And no matter how many times you try to walk, you trip. And you find yourself constantly struggling in this life of faith. You feel like the man from the Greek myth who was condemned by the gods for all eternity to do one thing over and over again. Perhaps you've heard the myth of Sisyphus. His task was to push a large boulder up to, the top of a, up to the top of a hill, but the boulder was not able to sit atop of the hill because it was so rounded. And so the boulder would roll back to the bottom of the hill, and Sisyphus had to go down the hill, get the boulder, push it back up again. This was his condemnation for all eternity. He was condemned to a life of utter absurdity, vanity, and futility. 
And I know enough people in my life, and perhaps there are some here, who feel exactly that way about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's why they feel that way. They feel that way because they've been confusing rock-pushing with cross-bearing. They fail to take into account that Jesus says, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and what will you find? Heavier works to do, more tasks to complete, a chore list. No, you will find rest for your souls. Augustine said our souls are restless until they find their rest in God. Some folks we know haven't really gone to church, or some folks we know feel like they haven't really gone to church until they leave feeling bad about themselves or about others. Some of you have been there and done that. It's like they want to be flogged and left for dead. They're gluttons for punishment. They go to church and they get their ears boxed and their toes stepped on and their hearts crushed week after week. They endure that punishment. They hear about how utterly rotten and unworthy they are again and again. The words cursed, damned, condemned bring them a sick form of comfort. For the Bible says, cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the book. Every single thing. And they haven't. And they don't. And they can't. And they just keep pushing that rock up the hill again and again and again. They act like the good news is simply too good to be true. God help us. There is no gospel in that. A gospel preacher should proclaim to you that you are blessed, that you are pardoned, that you are saved, not cursed, damned, and condemned. Why? Because of God's faithful promise and God's faithful performance and God's faithful presence for you. The gospel is the ultimate message of comfort for sinners, for strugglers, for stumblers like us. If you doubt that, please hear the gospel again for the first time. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Here's the good news for people who love bad news. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous is a sinner who is approved and accepted by God. She has a right standing before God because of everything Jesus has done for her, not because of anything she has done for Jesus. The accepted and approved sinner lives by assurance and confidence before the face of God. Why? Because there is a place for you in the heart of God. The gospel is all about the Father's faithful promise to you and Jesus' faithful performance for you and the Spirit's faithful presence with you. It's good news for sinners like us. Your acceptance and approval are not based on anything you do or don't do. Your acceptance and approval before God are not based on anything other people think, say, or do to you, or for you, or against you. 
Your acceptance and approval are based on everything God has promised, performed, and presented for you. Now let me show you what I mean. In Galatians 3, 6-9, we learn something about the faithful promise of the Father. There we see that the Father promised our father Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. This was all of grace and none of works because if you know anything about Abraham, you know that he was too old to perform and too weak to produce what God had promised. But God's power accomplished his purpose and fulfilled his promise. Abraham believed God. He trusted the source of the promise and not merely the substance of the promise. And it was counted to him as righteousness. God approved and accepted him on the basis of Abraham, Abraham believing the promise of God. Abraham was accepted and approved because he trusted God against all odds, against his own nature, against the circumstances of his life, against his own story. God is able to change things. God is able to raise the dead. God can call things that are not as though they were. And as a result, God did for Abraham much better than Abraham could ever do for himself. When Jesus came into the world, all people groups on earth received exactly what God promised. The forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And so the Father's faithful promise was fulfilled in Jesus' faithful performance. Look in Galatians 3, 10 to 13, and you'll see the faithful performance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Paul says here that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, the law is good. The law is not evil. The law is good. But what does the law do? The law condemns everyone who breaks it. The law has no compassion for sinners. The law has no chill when dealing with us. It points a critical finger at sinners and simply tells them that they are not approved and they are not acceptable to God because they are miserable failures. They are condemned and cursed. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified before your very eyes. N.T. Wright says that the word Publicly portrayed means like Paul sketched out or painted a picture for the Galatians to let them know what he was talking about. They didn't see the crucifixion in Jerusalem, but Paul depicted it in such a graphic way that it made it clear to them that what Jesus experienced at the cross, he experienced for them. All the gory details of the pain, blood, sweat, and tears of the cross prove something to us. And what do they prove? They prove that God makes himself vulnerable to the vulnerable. Or as we heard last week, that God's vulnerability meets us in our vulnerability. If you've never experienced that, you've never gotten your heart and mind around, around that, I want to encourage you to come to our Tenebrae service this Friday. And you will see and hear and feel this for yourself. Jesus Christ portrayed as crucified. But what does it mean? It wasn't just a tragic event where an innocent man died on the cross. But what does it mean? It means that Jesus paid the price for our salvation with his own life. That he was condemned so that we would be delivered up. And how did he do this? He did it by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. As you know, my family and I lived in Mexico many years ago, and we happened to be living there at the time when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. And everyone I knew flocked to theaters and saw that movie. One day I went to pay my rent, and the owner of the community in which I lived was sitting in her office, grief-stricken. She knew that I was a minister, she knew why I was living in Mexico, and she pulled me aside and said, I want to know if what the movie said about Jesus is true. I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, was the crucifixion really all that bad? And she's asking me this with tears in her eyes and fear in her heart, shaken by the images from that film. And I said to her, it was much worse than that. It was much worse than that, but for reasons that cannot be captured on film. Because what you can't capture on film is Jesus becoming a curse for us on the cross. What does it mean that Jesus became a curse for us on the cross? It means that he experienced all the darkness, all the desertion, all the death that we deserve for our sins. That at the cross, Jesus descended into hell with our sins on his back. And he did that for our sake. So the next time you see a cross, better yet, the next time you come to the Lord's table to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, remember this. That we who were once cursed are now blessed. Because he who is blessed was once cursed for our sake. As Karl Barth put it, Jesus was faithful to God in our place, in the place of those who previously were unfaithful to God. And though we are still marked by our own unfaithfulness, Jesus creates in the story of each person the beginning of a new story. The story of a person who has become faithful to God. We're not as faithful as we ought to be. We're not as faithful as we want to be. But the righteous shall live by faith, not merely his or her own faith, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Jesus' faithful performance at the cross brought forth the blessing of God, which we see not only in the pardon of sins, but in the presence of the Spirit. Look at Galatians 3.14, and you will see the faithful presence of the Holy Spirit. Why was Jesus cursed and condemned for us? Was it just so that we could go to heaven? It's more than that. It's so that in Christ Jesus, all the nations and families and peoples of the world would be blessed by God. Our God is a God of blessing. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He wants to bless the world, and he does so through the person and work of Jesus. But what are the blessings, according to Paul, in this passage? There are two that we can highlight. The first one is God's acceptance and approval of sinners. What a blessing to know that you're okay. And you're okay and better than okay because of what Jesus has done for you. The second blessing is this, the promised Holy Spirit. What a blessing to know that you're not just okay and God isn't simply putting up with you and tolerating your presence. 
but he abides with you and in you permanently, dwelling in you. To do what? On one hand, to cry out constantly, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papi. To remind you that you are a son or daughter of God. That you can rest knowing that your father hears those cries and those prayers. The spirit is there to unite you to Christ and to the father. But more than that, the spirit is there to change you. As you participate in the life of the spirit and live in the household of faith. As you live with God, even struggling with your doubts and fears, the Spirit is working grace into your life. The fruit of the Spirit begins to form in your life. The virtues of Christ take shape in you. And you start to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. The Spirit conforms you to the image of Jesus. As one theologian put it, the reality of the Christian existence is to be explained by the spirit as the power of participation. And we do participate in the life of the spirit, do we not? This is why Paul can say, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. Friends, I want you to know that all these blessings come to us through faith and not through works. They come to us as gifts of God, not wages that we have earned. They come to us freely, without strings attached. The promise given to Abraham, the promise spoken by the prophets, the promise echoed by the apostles is the promise given by the Spirit. The righteous shall live by faith. And if I could take one second to highlight that word live for you. The righteous shall live by faith. I want you to know the gospel is not about dying. The law was all about dying. The law killed. The spirit is it. The gospel is about living. It's about living. The letter kills. The spirit gives life. What are we living in? We're living in the father's faithful promise and Jesus's faithful performance and the spirit's faithful presence. So circling back to a question I asked earlier, how can you be accepted and approved by God? The answer is only by the gracious work of the faithfulness of God. Above the rise and fall of the waves of history in spite of human unfaithfulness, yes, in this unfaithfulness itself, there remains the faithfulness of God. If you haven't heard anything else today, if you've forgotten things that I've said, hear this and remember that if Jesus Christ crucified is good enough for God, if he is enough for God, then he is good enough for you and he is enough for you to make you acceptable and approved by God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray.